Hi, and welcome to Just a GP. Um, I'm Rebecca Hoffman. I'm joined by Charlotte Hespi and with a special guest this week, Fiona Willer, who is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian, a university lecturer, and a PhD candidate. Welcome. We're here today to continue our difficult conversation stream of the podcast. And today we're going to be talking about how to approach the conversation of lifestyle and in particular the patient's body size and as using that as a determinant of their health. So to begin with, as always, I wanted to get started about our highlight of the week. And Fiona, do you want to get started with what your highlight of your week was? Well, hello everyone. Um, my uh, because my research area and my expertise area is in health at every size, which we'll talk about today. Um, the the win of the week actually happened today. It's the largest uh, gathering of dietitians on the globe happening in America at the moment, um, and there are eleven thousand delegates, eleven thousand dietitians in one place at the moment in the US. It's that's more dietitians than there are in Australia, by the way. Um, anyway, part of their uh, events today included a uh, what they pitched as a debate panel between a health at every size dietitian and a, a weight centric. Uh, medical doctor and uh, by all accounts there was a standing ovation for the health at every size uh, side so that's a pretty amazing win we've still got some very weight-centric dietitians out there so for my um, for my people that was really wonderful to hear about today. Sounds awesome. Cool. That sounds really good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> amazing yeah it's a great time. And yourself, Charlotte? Yeah, so for me, um, mine has sort of been, I've just come back from a weekend of um, workshopping about smoking cessation and that's been really, like it's been a great weekend with a couple of international speakers, one from Canada and one from New Zealand. And so we've had plenty of opportunity to sort of really chat about what smoking cessation means. And I think the highlight for me was I, got to be um, one of the debaters for a debate about whether it was possible to achieve a zero percent um, smoking rate in Australia. I was on the the no side, I'll have to confess, and I think that was the easiest side to argue and we did win the debate. But having said that, I did say that that didn't stop me from being aspirational about choose it you know about succeeding as a getting a zero percent smoking rate but at the end of the day the joy of being Australian was that people do have a choice. I don't know that to congratulate you or to commiserate but it sounds like it was a good weekend. It was a great weekend it's always good to spend time with with colleagues who are similarly like-minded and passionate about um, improving the health of the people that we're looking after. And my highlight of the week, so I spent some time reflecting about GP18, which we've had recently, and a lot of the sessions that I went to were about GP health and self-care. And so I tried this week to pay particular attention to doing some things that I enjoy doing. And um, although that means that I now have several projects that are now working projects, in process. I've um, painted a mural on my three-year-old's wall and I've cut out a play mat to knit for my sister. Um, 
and I've continued on some other crafty things as well and I've really enjoyed it and really just taken some time to me which has been a highlight that I'm guilty of not doing enough of usually. Good on you. You're going to have to send us photos of the uh, finished projects, you know. They may take a while. (laughs) The aim is to get them done by Christmas, but I don't know if it'll be Christmas 2018 or Christmas 2019. Um, But the mural's done, which is lovely. So I think we might um, just jump straight in and talk about why you think that talking about weight is a difficult conversation, Fiona. Yeah, so my field, as I said before, is health at every size. And so that means that the philosophical framework is that weight, being of a heavier weight, is not necessarily a bad thing. Because, you know, at an individual level, there's so much variation but from person to person. And there's a fair bit of pretty convincing evidence now that when we paint a whole sort of uh, category of humans as being instantly diseased or instantly in poorer health without taking into account their lived experience or actually anything to do with their health apart from the, the, the number on the scale, that that itself causes issues. And so in Health at Every Size, it's a weight neutral framework. So we uh, would welcome every human and everybody that they have. And that it's really aligned with GP practice in that way. You treat the person you've got in front of you there. but when we think about the word fat, it's such a, a a word that's got so much meaning and very different meanings as well. So if you're in the health at every size camp and you accept the body that you have, fat becomes a pretty neutral descriptor of the body shape that you have. So there are fat people and thin people in the world. But fat has been used as a, a insult for so long. And then the word obesity by extension has also become an insult because of its association with the word fat and also obesity itself because the term is ascribed to a category based on a a, a metric rather than on a, a disease state with any other sort of definitions we've got the situation where we've when we talk about bodies we can talk them talk about them in a way that can be highly stigmatizing for the person Uh, And we can talk about them in a way that isn't overly stigmatising, but you never really know how it's going to land for the person in front of you, depending on their own framework. So will you use the word fat when you're talking to your clients? Only if they've used it themselves and I know them quite well. So even those for those people who've reclaimed the word fat and it's quite neutral for them to say, to hear it from others, because it's quite often still used as an insult, uh, can be itself quite upsetting or just jolting it's quite distracting Um, and especially if the person who's using it you're not sure whether it's an insult or just a descriptor I mean we don't really have to talk about the appearance of our bodies that much in healthcare practice Um, it you know it's much uh, more uh, accepting and client-centered to just talk about our our body my body your body this body that body rather than making some sort of blanket judgments about them I mean, I hate the obesity and those sorts Mm. of labels because I think for me, I I sort of find that most of my patients don't mind fat as much as they hate obesity label. Yeah. I I mean, that might just be my particular patients. Not that I ever use fat anyway, but I'm interested in the the use of overweight. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, the, the thing about that term overweight, it denotes that it's over something. 
And we know from population stats, even back in the 40s, that the the midpoint for BMI was 25. So even then, 50% of the population would have been classified as over whatever the right weight is, you know. (laughs) Um, And that was before this shift towards higher body weights in our current food system. So yeah, it's pro- it is problematic. When I talk about it academically, I tend to first of all remind people that BMI is actually a continuous variable. You know, it was only ever devised to be a, a numerical continuous measure and that we've shoved our categories on top of that and that's completely a fairly arbitrary process. And so that 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 category I talk about being a BMI between 25 and 30. That's sort of the most neutral way to talk about it. It doesn't have its own name really, does it? No, it, it, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, because I'm exactly the same. I don't like using those because they, they do have so much of a judgment, but you have mm. this sort of, you know, weight is there and they've often, I mean, outing in the room as to what they think that weight looks like, you know, what, mm. what, what does it mean to you um, and those sorts of things. It, it is, it's a deep, well, it's that difficult conversation, isn't it? Because we certainly hear out there that the application of a label makes the conversation even harder. That's it. And remembering that body weight and its relationship with health is a it's a risk relationship and it's a risk of a distant event kind of relationship rather than an immediate health relationship. So you can separate it out and say something like, look, the weight that your body is at the moment does put you in a higher risk bracket for XYZ. And that means I'm going to actually keep a close eye on your other risk factors to see whether we're keeping a, a lid on that risk. But there's also these other conversations that we don't have enough in one on one practice. And that is, how has your body affected the way that you can go about the world? And as health professionals, we've got a lot of Uh, power to advocate for our clients in larger bodies to receive the medical care that they deserve immediately rather than sort of shaming them for ending up in the bodies that they have. Because, I mean, as a dietitian and a a lifestyle behaviour researcher, really if we took 100 larger people and compared them with the behaviours of 100 smaller people, they're actually not that different. About the same proportion of people eat well, and that's not very many at all in either of the camps, um, and virtually the same proportion of people move as according to the physical activity guidelines as well. And again, that's not more than half of either of those groups. So we can't make any judgments about people's lifestyle without actually asking them. And we also can't make any judgments about people's experience of their bodies without actually asking them. So we need to lean in but not stigmatise as a as part of it. Yeah, it's that whole big bigger picture thing, isn't it? You know, what, mm. does this, what does this mean to you? Does it prevent you from doing things and is it otherwise getting in the way of your health? Mm. So what other strategies um, do you take, you know, once you've sort of opened up a conversation about health at one size, what does that mean in terms of then engaging actively with with a program that's tailored to each person. Yeah. So with the Health at Every Size framework, there are some practice principles, they're philosophical principles around accepting people in the bodies that they have and not expecting them to lose weight because we know long-term that it's very unlikely for most people. And if it does happen, it will happen as a result of some behavioural changes and their metabolic situation that may allow some weight suppression at the time. So really the conversations are around first of all, helping them to accept that they're not probably going to ever have that much thinner body that, you know, 
capitalism has told them is possible. Um, and so around size acceptance uh, and also around if, if they're interested in engaging in behaviours that do support the enhancement of their health outcomes, for example, eating well, moving their bodies, um, doing other things consistent with healthy outcomes, sleep hygiene, all the, all the usual lifestyle medicine stuff, um, yeah. then helping support them experiment with different ways that they can do that in their current life that are sustainable and enjoyable. But without talking about weight specifically. Well, talking about weight, like the number itself is pretty irrelevant and I think that's not controversial even in regular practice, but talking about the way that the body, that their body interacts with the world in that, you know, are they are they getting yelled at out of car windows? Have they had the experience where they've been denied being able to adopt a child if their body if their BMI is too high. Like these things make a massive difference in somebody's life. So you talk about it in that way. And you can't you can't ignore body dissatisfaction until it goes away. It's not one of those things. You have to talk about the body in terms of its functional capacity rather than its appearance. And that's really in the psychology research around body image and body dissatisfaction, that shift towards functionality look isn't it amazing you've got a larger body and it's able to bring a child into the world it's able to get you from a to b even if it's got chronic disease issues going on functionality over appearance will always help somebody to take better care of themselves okay so just me putting my um medicalized model hat on (laughs) yes so we have a lot of um advice around the benefit of losing 5ks and, you know, so that I will certainly talk about that in the frame of I don't need you to be, you know, thinner or whatever, but that I also know that there is evidence that five kilograms less when you're the weight you are will actually benefit, you know, quite a number of things, particularly, say, if they've got, say, osteoarthritis or issues um, with movement. How does that fit in with your model? Because it doesn't sound like it's that it doesn't I mean it sounds like it doesn't yeah I guess with with the kind of evidence that's used to justify those recommendations the five percent or the five kilo type of recommendations they're based on weight loss studies where people have been trying their hardest to lose as much as they can and this is the average that they've found some of the people in those studies are what we would call super responders to the weight loss so you've got these sort of star performers and they pull down everyone's average and then extrapolated from, and also you've got weight, the energy suppression from not eating as much as you usually do or exercising more that causes an energy deficit. And that itself is having independent impacts on cholesterol, on blood sugar control, on HbA1c. And so we end up attributing to weight loss the effects of that deficit. And they're just as transient as the energy deficit is so when somebody regains weight which tends to happen within two to five years with startling predictability the um, biochem the other surrogate markers that we're interested in in terms of chronic disease risk tend to go back to baseline as well so we've got I mean I see it as a bit of a party trick you know if you can help someone to lose a bit of weight that will suppress those biochem but it's actually got very little to do with the actual absolute weight that they are and more to do with you know, what's doing the work in that weight loss intervention. And remember, particularly for someone around uh, osteoarthritis, the actual weight loss intervention is not wave a magic wand. They're usually doing more physical activity. They may be doing more resistance stuff. And there's an effect that that would have even if there wasn't 
weight loss as an outcome that's potentially positive, particularly around, you know, joints and so forth. So that's they're, they're the arguments there. And and there's also the when you do put a bunch of people in a lifestyle um, modification intervention, even if it's weight neutral, some will lose weight in there because they may have had some interesting lifestyle behaviours beforehand, but many won't lose weight, but they'll still have benefits to their cholesterol and blood sugar control and so forth from the things that they're doing rather than from the weight change. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I certainly see that from my years of, of weight management sort of discussions. Mm. But the, I mean, where I would sort of, I suppose my experience with my diabetes risk patients, so yeah. th- they seem to me to be quite a different potentially kettle of fish in that they are those metabolically, um, uh, well, they're the population where the that the the fat is actually not doing them any good versus what I would call the healthy fat who for whom it really doesn't make a difference. And you've seen all of those, you know, the I mean I've seen some really good evidence and arguments around, you know, that what the fat is actually doing and the, you know, the the role that it has in the metabolic disease. And we can see that if those people engage with I mean, I, it's, it is around the, the, the better diet, it is around the more exercise and stuff, but there is nearly always has to be a significant weight loss associated with it. I actually see people being able to reverse their, you know, pre or early onset diabetes back into being non-diabetic. And if they maintain it, and I've got certainly got a population of patients who have maintained it because they really don't want to get diabetes that can stay away from diabetes. So where does that sit in with this model? Yeah, so the thing is our theories around what's driving what are confounded by the fact that we only work, you know, from now into the future. We can only observe. We can't do any forensics and be sure what was driving what. And so we've got this situation where we've got people in larger bodies and we've got larger, like higher levels of inflammation and so forth. But... We can't mag- wave our magic wand and make them into a smaller person. The actual intervention to get them from to be larger to smaller has its own effect. And so for some people, you know, just moving more and eating, and you know, more fruit and veg or what, whatever needs to be done in terms of their eating habits to be sustainable and enjoyable in the long term and also consistent with nourishment and blood sugar control, that will that, that also independently uh, reduces the progression rate of type two diabetes. And remembering that our sort of our remission stats are very much based on where we're drawing the line as to what's pre-diabetes, what's diabetes. That's a that's a human-made line in the sand there, because in reality it's it's quite messy in terms of who's going to ever have blood sugar control that's errant enough to cause damage in their body over their lifetime. So with health at every size we also acknowledge that people have their absolute autonomous choice to decide whether they're going to engage in weight loss behaviors or not and for some people who've had a history of an eating disorder or for whom they have been trying literally their entire lives to lose weight and it has robbed them of quality of life that they would they can choose to not go down the path of another weight loss intervention and instead choose to focus on what they want to focus on now, which may well be more exercise or it may be some changes to food, they themselves, again, have an independent effect on their health outcomes. It's basically 
the kind of thing that we already recommend to people who are within BMI of sort of 20 to 25. Those things work for humans between 20 and 25 because they work for humans. They don't magically stop working when you get into a larger person. Yeah, I mean, as I say, I don't think we're on a different um, wavelength. I think it's just about how we frame what it is that we're doing. That's it, and, and consent. Yeah, and it is having that conversation. And I th- I, I can hear that the trying to get that emphasis is getting it away from the weight, isn't it? Yeah. So because you don't want your clients, if you've told them, right, you need to lose five kilos or whatever it is, you don't actually want them to go and join some kind of identity diet cult and do it that way in a very short-term um, sort of potentially psychologically harmful way. What you mean is let's have a look at your lifestyle and get you a bit more physically active if that's an issue, get you eating more fruit and veg if that's an issue. You know, that's actually what you mean with let's try to lose some weight. You're not asking them to go and lose a limb or go and get dysentery or, you know, or any of the other ways that human bodies lose weight. It's really around the lifestyle that you're assuming is implicated in that weight change. Yeah, so, and interestingly, I'll, I'll, I'll interrupt for you because yeah. that seems to be the thing that so many people tell me are the things I can't make people change, um, which, you know, is an interesting philosophy in itself because um, I think people can change, but certainly it is a much harder thing to say how do you change what you're doing and um, introduce things in a way that, you know, might take more effort than yeah. what they're currently doing. And that the thing is, if we peg it to a weight loss goal, so if they do all the things and they don't lose the weight, which is a pretty typical experience because bodies are like some bodies do not want to lose weight no matter what you do to them, um, then they're they're pegging their their outcome measure for those behaviour changes as as weight, and that's not really fair. It's not actually a valid measure of lifestyle change. So instead of measuring, instead of being able to validate their behaviour change by looking at a number on a scale. Instead of that, in Health at Every Size and in other sort of disciplines, we use measures that actually measure the behaviour change. So how much more frequently are you going for a walk? You know, what's your diet quality like and, and taking measures of that? Let's talk about eating behaviour, whether it's become pathological or whether it's still quite sort of adaptive and flexible eating style. We'd measure that way rather than pegging it to the weight. Because if you give the impression that weight is the important thing and then the weight change doesn't happen, that's that's an external motivator. We know from self-determination theory that's not great at making behaviours sticky. So how hard is it to get people to change their frame from being around body weight yeah. and weight to this body at any size? Because I, you know, I can imagine that for a number, I mean, I know for a number of my patients, moving them away from thinking about that number on the scale is often extremely difficult. It is. And because we're in this cultural soup where bodies have value, you know, bodies of particular appearance have value. And so it, it's just about as difficult as it is to get health professionals to decide they want to use this framework because we're all individuals who live in our own bodies and are in this soup as well, you know. So when, you've, when we've got a client in front of us and we start talking about this stuff, sometimes they're really relieved. They're so relieved that someone's given them the permission to not self-destruct, you know, continue to self-destruct in terms of their um, diet behaviours. And others are really sceptical, as you can imagine. 
for those who are willing to um, work on it, and it is work, you know, think about the treatment burden that we we have when we ask somebody to lose weight. You know, we ask them to think about everything that they eat and all the physical activity that they do every waking moment for extended periods of time. It's got a high treatment burden. It's not not that with a weight neutral approach because there's a lot of work initially to be done around um, self-acceptance, around self-compassion, around the things that are going to make them more resilient in the face of this sort of continually weight-centric, fat-hating kind of world. So there's all that stuff. That's quite hard work. Um, And for those people who are, you know, willing to have a go at something different, they've tried diets before, it hasn't worked for them, they're tired of it, they're angry, you know, this continued narrative around their body size. We ask them just to put their weight, uh, the, the, the sort of weight ideals on the back burner, just on the back burner, simmering away in the, in the background while we work on other stuff. And eventually people tend to be able to then, you know, sort of if it's on the back burner, take it off the hob and then, you know, put it in the bin, put the, put the saucepan away if we're using that analogy. But you can't just click your fingers and have someone go, oh, no, weight doesn't matter to me at all now because we've had this conditioning around our bodies and and it's reinforced with public health messages and with the messages from our healthcare providers as well, not just socially. So it can be hard work. But for those who are uh, willing to try something new and really lean into it and do the work around self-acceptance and do the work around really being able to unpick their health situation from their number on a scale it can be very re- rewarding so then you've got a patient who is happy to throw away the scales and to accept their body as they are how do we then approach movement and eating without it sounding like we're prescribing a diet <laughs> yeah so really i mean the way that health at every size based interventions work is through self-determination theory. So uh, as the dietitian in the situation, I would present what we know from observational and experimental studies in terms of the sorts of foods um, that are related to particular health outcomes. Talk about that. And then have a chat to them about whether they find any value in any of those things that I've spoken about already and whether they wanted to experiment. So it's really learning through experimental and experiential learning rather than didactic because what we have trained to do is that didactic stuff. Here's your meal plan. You need to eat two fruit and five veg a day. You know, that's quite didactic advice. Whereas if somebody is coming to it with a curious approach and particularly uh, coupling it with the more immediate effects of dietary change and of physical activity. For example, you know, when you do eat more veggies, people tend to have a more um, satisfying laxation situation going on. And so those immediate benefits to eating well can be then sustain that uh, fruit and veg intake. And that's that they've decided what kind of fruit and veg they like and how to eat it. I haven't prescribed anything. So it's in that way. We need to be much better at motivational interviewing and about, um, you know, using the principles of self-determination theory to foster that internal um, autonomy rather than external advice. And the same for movement. Will you prescribe or recommend that a movement or activity is prescribed or along the same thought process to say just do what you enjoy doing and do something 
Well, the do something is tricky too because we've got a lot of people out there for whom exercise is coupled only with a, like a, a, a health kick, a diet kind of kick. And we know, particularly in the eating disorder field, that if you prescribe something or encourage something too early that can cause this reactance. People don't want to do it. And if there's a so if they've associated it with negative outcomes for a long time, it's very difficult to make them want to do it as well. So ironically, being sort of much more um, gentle around physical activity can help people to want to start to do something sooner. So that's for people who've been hurt by continual diet cycling over their lives. For others, you know, again, yes, those immediate benefits, even if they don't like it when they're doing it, do they like the way they feel afterward? Do they like how much easier it is to get up the stairs or play with their kids or, you know, pick up the groceries? So those sort of, you know, fit for purpose kind of life activities that physical activity helps us with. Uh, and then you with others, that connection to other people, if they're doing a group sport or something that they work together with others, can be their sort of in to enjoying moving their body. It's interesting that's, again, sort of challenging because the way that, um, you know, certainly we teach uh, lifestyle stuff, I'm not saying this is what I necessarily do, but the way we teach it is very much about pres- prescribing activity. Um, yeah, well, and- I mean, the doctor comes with power. You know, if you tell someone to do it, they're more likely to do it than if I, as a dietitian, tell someone to do it. But that power relationship is not necessarily great in terms of developing people's self-determination. It needs to be a much more on the same level supportive relationship rather than a you tell, they do thing. Yeah, I, I would 100% agree with you, though I'd like to think that my, you know, when I certainly talk about exercise it's not done from a this is what you must do because that yeah. never works and it's always but being on the conversation about well you know what how, what have you ever done in the past is there anything that you enjoy yeah um, and how would that fit into your lifestyle and is it actually possible because you know absolutely impo- you know ridiculous me sending someone away and saying you know well you've got to do three workouts a week and blah, blah, and that's just... Yeah, on top of their three jobs and trying to get food on the table for a family of six, yeah. 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 I I quite like the philosophy of what I call um, being um, energy inefficient, so making use of those opportunities in your life. You know, if you've got to go and do something, go and do it. Don't wait for three tasks to do in one go because the opportunity to stand up and move is probably better than waiting around for the next one which probably also goes with that whole thing about standing up more frequently is actually associated with healthier outcomes than really even needing to move much so it's just that sort of getting up and doing something um, more frequently. That's it I think we do forget that stress is such a big you know stress and the experience of stigma have huge effects when we look at health outcomes as well and so we get sort of focused on oh what are you doing now (laughs) and then forget that people have these burdens that they deal with in their lives that are potentially you know that the the effect of carrying a psychological burden around is potentially much heavier than the little bit of reprieve we can get with lifestyle behaviors so that whole person approach is so important But, yeah, I mean, everyone, most health professionals are really kind human beings. We score off the charts in terms of compassion. Um, But sometimes when we do things, we do them out of a sense of historical 
sort of practice rather than really what kind of what what impact am I having when I'm focusing on these health behaviors without taking the whole person into context necessarily or or just assuming that they're sedentary when perhaps they're not at all just by the you know looking at the shape of their body so tell me what do you think about um the fitbits and things in that because an awful lot of people have self-prescribed themselves with um, yes more and more watches and apps that you know tell them how much they have or haven't moved and putting in their calories and uh, i don't know being accountable for every second of their day i think they're great for nerds but they're really toxic for people with vulnerability to an eating disorder absolutely loads of Patients that I've had and people I've spoken to have been actively harmed by having that calorie information in their face all the time. So there's there's that. But I mean, I'm talking as a person who I have an Apple Watch. I really like to look at my um, heart rate through the day and see how high I can get it when I do my various sports. So there's that. But when we're coupling sort of the goodness of one's day to uh, particularly calories, like steps I don't find so problematic, but any kind of counting can be quite toxic for some people. But the calories themselves, because uh, I mean, as a dietitian, I know how many points of error there are in that number, um, both before they get to the number and also the kind of uh, extrapolations that are done towards the individual who's looking at the numbers. So much error, error that would horrify you. And so we're sort of basing a lot of confidence on this number on the Fitbit which is fabrication of a lot of stuff. And so that's not necessarily helpful either. You know, we'd end up with too much focus on this external number and not enough recognition that actually human bodies use a lot of energy one day and much less the next day. And we balance our energy over weeks to months, not from day to day. It's a complete, not fabrication, but like we're utterly wrong when we assume that a human body needs about the same amount of energy every day. It's only that we've divided it into days and we've got this number. But when you chart an actual human being free living out there in the real world, it's weeks to months that energy balance occurs in. And we are far from being able to have any external way of being able to cope with that amount of variation from day to day. The only thing we have is our appetite cues. Yeah, and we're not very good at that. We're not, um, we're not necessarily very good at that. And dieting trains us to not listen and, or to not trust our bodies and what it, they're telling us. So, you know, there's that with the Fitbits. But, I mean, then again, I, I did wear a Fitbit for a couple of years as well. <laughs> there's a, always a honeymoon period and then people get over these things. I think I'm a bit like you. I, I like my little gadgets. I really like the Apple Watch. In the next series, I haven't, I've got a three, not a four, but how you can get an ECG on the watch. I think that will save lives. I think that's brilliant. So there are great things too, but with that comes risk to people who are vulnerable to counting. And also if it's not accurate and creates a whole lot of anxiety when there's nothing to be anxious about. Right, exactly. And so much around food is that, you know, we've only been able to have any idea about what's in our food for about the last 80 years (laughs) and similarly for how much our bodies have weighed and we have managed to really mess ourselves up with that information. So really where I find that this approach works in my practice is with myself and how I have approached this conversation is that I find now that what I'm talking to people about isn't their weight and their appearance and I actually no longer have scales in my room. They get done by the nurse when they're doing all of their other health assessment criteria but I'm talking to the patients about 
function and functionality and how they're feeling rather than how they're looking and what their weight is. Some patients are very, very receptive to it. Many, many, many patients are not and think that I'm crazy and want to know what their weight is and how they lose weight and what they can do to be a smaller size. And I find that I really struggle with that conversation now. Any strategies for normal physiological weight gain in ageing and attaching this ideology into that population? It is really hard work, isn't it? And I mean, when I was a hospital dietitian working with people in the orthopaedic ward, elderly Mm. women who had had hip fractures and then a hip replacement who were refusing to eat anything because they didn't want to get fat in the hospital bed. Just dreadful, you know, completely counter to health and nourishment and all the rest of the stuff. So, I mean, my advice would be to help by referring them to somebody where they can take time to unpack all the stuff. And that's usually a uh, health at every size counsellor or psychologist. There are loads of those out there. But it is hard work. Some of some people will never get there. I do remember my lovely elderly patients. They will never get to this point because they've been inoculated with what we call diet culture, that weight centrism for their entire lives. They're, this is not a time that they're going to be able to change their perspective completely. Um, but for some who are willing to lean in, we need to give them the chance to do that. Um, in, in dietetics, we've got weight loss dietitians and we've got weight uh, weight neutral dietitians, body acceptance dietitians. And so, if a client comes to us and some and to a Hayes dietitian, a health at every size dietitian, and they're shown the long and short term outcomes of of both uh, different approaches and what kind of sort of commitments required for both and all of that stuff, they're properly receiving an, an informed consent uh, option here and they still choose, they, they're absolutely um, confident that they want a weight loss approach. A, at least we've, you know, planted the seed that it's not the only way. They, it might be the first time they've ever heard of that. But also we can then refer them to a colleague who can help them do that rather than, again, going to the local identity diet cult around the corner. That's probably the best that we can ask for, given that we've got this conditioning around body size at the moment. Can I move on to resource of the week? Yeah, I think we should probably move to resource of the week just because we're, we've are we sort of gone to our time. But I'll just sort of bring us back to, though, remember we are needing to address the patient in front of us. And so sometimes we need to cope with that they might not have the same ability to adopt a change in thinking and it's important that we still meet the needs that they might want in terms of how we and we still need to be trying to get them to be as healthy as they can. Yeah and as primary care providers you need to be able to hold both of those needs whereas as uh, allied health professionals we can choose whether we're going to work in a particular paradigm or not. So it is a you know it's a it's a choice that all primary health care providers have to make where they're going to sit and can they hold both and can they you know communicate effectively about the different types of options that are out there for somebody who is interested in doing something healthy yeah and without judgment Hmm. thanks Fiona that was really interesting conversation (laughs) 
So I think Beck was um, moving, well, you and me and her into a um, resource of the week. Do you want to start? Yes. Yes. So my resource of the week is a book that I've almost finished. (laughs) Um, And it is, it's brilliant. I've loved every word of it, actually. But it's one of those books where you read it and nothing is it's completely the the kind of narrative that you love to read, but it's a health book. I hardly ever read anything other than nonfiction, unfortunately, which is a bit sad. But anyway, my um, recommendation is a book called Ending Medical Reversal, Improving Outcomes, Saving Lives. And it's by Vinyak Prasad and Adam Sifu, who are quite prominent on Twitter. That's when I came across them. And they dissect uh, medical research and write about those interventions that we have brought into everyday practice, who, which have ended up then being pulled when we've realised that they've either been ineffective or, in fact, harmful, even though we didn't think that at the beginning. And it goes through the different types of studies. Um, it's got a, peppered with a lot of uh, examples of medications that have been pulled and practices that have been pulled and, and sort of forensically dissects how that ended up coming into medical practice without that evidence base that we theoretically expect from everything. So that's my uh, recommendation, Ending Medical Reversal. It's a great read. Great. Thanks. And yourself, Charlotte? Look, I think going on the theme of um, today's discussion, for those who don't know, the Butterfly Foundation for Eating Disorders is a great website and can provide some sort of useful information for GPs who are interested in sort of knowing a bit more about some of the services that's a great resource I know that website and my resource of the week is really a confession of what a rough week we have had with daylight savings and getting my children to sleep Um, so I've got a two-year-old and a three-year-old who neither particularly enjoy sleeping and so a resource that I actually use a lot for my patients and may potentially be introducing some of my family members to is um, the raisingchildren.net.au website. So a big plug for an Aussie website that's easy to navigate and is just a wonderful resource to get patients to have a look at. Funded by the Australian government, written by health professionals and is really nice evidence-based raising children basic information. It's great. I think that brings us to the end of this podcast. Yeah, so thanks, Fiona, and thanks, Beck. That's been really interesting and certainly uh, challenging maybe in sort of how we might approach um, the whole issue of of health and what that might look like in how we live our lives each day. (laughs) Have a lovely evening. Thank you for having me. Bye.